you pray with me? O oh God, in the stillness, we open our hearts to you. Amen. So as we begin this morning, I want to invite you to pause for just a moment and to get in touch with what matters most to you. What is it that gives you the greatest joy in your life? What gives you the greatest sense of purpose? When do you feel most alive? I want you to hold on to that thought because we'll come back to it later in the sermon. This second Sunday of Lent invites us into the mystery of salvation. It is something that is hard to describe. It lends itself to metaphor and poetry better than to a logical three-point essay. And we start with the posture that there is something strange about salvation. The gospel reading from Mark adds to the mystery rather than clearing things up. Our reading begins with Jesus and the disciples having a conversation. Jesus is asking the disciples who people say that he is. And they go down the list. Some people say you are John the Baptist. Other people say you are Elijah. Still others say that you are one of the prophets. And then Jesus makes it personal. And you, who do you say that I am? Peter gets the answer right, so to speak. He says that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, and we know that's the right answer because we are privy to information that those living the story don't yet have. We have read the clues that Mark gives at the beginning of the gospel that this is the story of one who is specially chosen by God. We have the insight that the demons recognize Jesus precisely because he is the Christ. And of course, we know how the story ends. We know that Jesus is crucified on the cross and that he is raised to life three days later. But the disciples don't know these things. They're grasping in the dark, trying to piece together what others are saying about Jesus and who they experience him to be, and perhaps more importantly, who they hope he will be. You see, at this point in his ministry, Jesus hasn't actually done any of the things that would indicate to them that he is the Messiah or the Christ. According to Jewish tradition, the Messiah was to come as a political leader, one who wielded great power and toppled the oppressive kingdoms of the world. The Messiah was to be invincible, like a superhero who could not be beaten. Now, so far in his life and ministry, Jesus has done some amazing and interesting things, things like calming a storm, healing people from their sicknesses, feeding those who are hungry, but he hasn't yet done anything to assume political leadership in the land. So when Peter says that Jesus is the Messiah, he is naming the hope. That Jesus will live into all of his assumptions about what that title means. Peter gets the title right. 
But Jesus knows that it doesn't mean the same thing that Peter thinks it does. So Jesus then launches into this teaching about what being the Messiah really means. There will be suffering and rejection. The Son of Man will be killed and then rise again. Peter doesn't like this message. And Jesus doesn't like that Peter doesn't like it. And then Jesus moves into talking about what it means to be his follower. You know, being a follower is an interesting thing because followership is not something we generally talk much about, right? We don't ask high school seniors if they're going to be followers of someone. We want them to be leaders, right? We groom young people in this way. It's not something that we even generally aspire to be, a follower, unless we're talking these days about following someone on Twitter or Facebook. And of course, there, all it means is that we'll get alerts when the person we're following posts new content. But we prefer to think in terms of leadership. We're the ones in charge, the ones making the change happen. But the invitation from Jesus is to be a follower, to do more than to read new posts from Jesus, but rather to walk in his footsteps. Jesus says, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. This is a paradox, denying ourselves, taking up the cross, trying to save our lives will cause us to lose them. Losing our lives for Jesus' sake will cause us to save them. Now, I think it's important to be clear at this point that this is not a call to victimization or self-denial that causes harm to ourselves. These verses have been interpreted by many a churchgoer to mean that they just have to endure whatever, whatever terrible things are present in their lives. But Jesus is not asking us to bear the cross of an abusive marriage or an unhealthy relationship. Jesus is not asking us to wear ourselves out in the name of serving him or the church. Jesus is not calling us to a life of misery. These verses are about finding our lives by losing them and losing our lives by trying to save them. These verses are about abundant life and becoming the best followers of Jesus that we can be. It's more poetic and metaphoric than literal. There is a strange way in which salvation involves both, losing our lives in order to save them. Mary Oliver's poem in Blackwater Woods describes this mystery. She writes about a fire that is destroying the woods around Blackwater Pond. The trees are turning their own bodies into pillars of light as the glow of the fire spreads. The fire is heating up the sap in the trees 
igniting this deep, rich scent of cinnamon. And the cattails are bursting and floating away. There is a deep, poignant, and somehow beautiful sense of loss that she describes. The fire is destroying the forest. The pond is losing its markers of identity, its sense of self. She writes, every pond, no matter what its name is, is nameless now. And Jesus asked that question, who do you say that I am? In a way, when we give our answer about who we say that Jesus is, we are also saying something about who we are. Perhaps part of the mystery of losing our lives to find them is to give up that which defines us. To let go of our identities that are derived from our outward successes and just be part of creation. Here in Kansas, we live in the prairie and the farmlands, a place where we are familiar with the way that fire both destroys and creates loss, and yet at the same time, the way that fire gives way to life. After we moved to Wichita, I remember driving through the Flint Hills, which is on our way back to Missouri. And I remember seeing with surprise the the land being burnt, right, charred. And in other places, sometimes we even saw a blazing fire. And not knowing what was going on, my first thought was, oh no! But then, with acclamation to Kansas culture, I soon realized that the burning land was probably part of prescribed burning. This method of preservation that's used to restore the prairie lands and to rejuvenate their growth to ensure long-term survival. Prescribed burns stem from an ancient Native American tradition of using controlled burns to attract bison herds for hunting, but they also help prevent lightning-induced fires that could blaze across the open prairie land, causing extreme destruction. Farmers and ranchers today recognize the value of prescribed burns. The burns help them control weeds without using pesticides. It keeps the prairie land from evolving into a forest full of trees, and it produces graze-ready grass for cattle, which actually helps them gain more weight. But it also reduces the presence of harmful parasites in the grass. Yet when the fire burns across the rolling flint hills, it destroys everything in its path. The delicate flower that was starting to bud, the grasses that have grown since the last burning, the insects and small animals that have made their homes in the fields. I can hear the words of Mary Oliver echoing across the blazing prairie land. Every year, everything I have ever learned in my lifetime leads back to this. The fires and the black rivers of loss whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever know. 
It is at this point in the poem when Mary Oliver transitions into a connection to human loss and acceptance, and how that connects with the mystery of salvation, and oh, how deeply that also connects with Jesus' words. Because though the flurry of commercials and advertisements leads us to think differently, life is not something that we can earn or buy or own. We cannot buy our ways to happiness or fulfillment. We cannot work our way toward a full and abundant life. We cannot purchase a ticket to life without loss. Rather, the only things that we can hold on to really are the things that we give away. So I want you to think back to what you brought to your mind at the beginning of the sermon when I ask you those questions. What gives you the greatest joy in your life? What gives you the greatest sense of purpose? When do you feel most alive? I would venture to guess that you didn't name a product that you had saved money for. You probably didn't name your daily commute to work or an experience that didn't require very much effort on your part. It is more likely that you named a relationship that you have invested a lot of time into, perhaps the relationship with your parent, your child, your cousin, or your friend. It is more likely that you named a work commitment in which you willingly gave of yourself for the sake of the project and the team that you worked with. It is more likely that you named a volunteer project in which you sacrificed time in order to make it all come together and make a positive difference for someone else. It is more likely that you named a degree you earned in which you spent countless hours reading and researching and writing and learning and growing. The only things that we can hold on to, really, are the things that we give away. This is different than abusive relationships or toxic, toxic situations in which parts of ourselves are taken from us. These kinds of joy-filling, purpose-defining, and life-giving experiences are the ones where we freely give parts of our lives away. This is when we learn by experience one of the deepest truths of life and the mystery of salvation. The only things we can hold on to are the things we give away. Things like love, mercy, kindness, compassion. In the end, self-denial and cross-bearing are about discovering real and abundant life, which do require something of us, but never in a way that leave us deformed or less than what we were before. There's a story about Auguste Rodin, who was a wonderful French sculptor, and one day, Rodin found an enormous, carefully carved wooden crucifix beside a road. He admired the cross so much that he bought it, and then he had it carted off to his home. But when it arrived, he found the cross was too big to fit inside his house. 
So as the story goes, he knocked down the walls, he raised the roof, and he rebuilt his home around the cross. You see, I would venture to guess that all of the joy-filling, purpose-defining, and life-giving experiences that you named also changed you. I would venture to guess that you realized the cross you longed for wouldn't fit in your old house and you had to knock down some walls, raise the roof, and rebuild. I would venture to guess that you lost part of who you were in order to gain a new dimension of who you are. In his blog, Michael Coffey writes, it's really only the hard things in this life that end up telling us who we are, what we are made of, and what really matters. It is only the struggles we work through successfully or not that teach us the limits and the grandeur of being human. It is only the acceptance of suffering as a necessary part of the human condition that draws us together and unites us as one in our fragile, bodily, humble reality. It is only in confronting our death and placing our lives wholly in the fatherly arms, the motherly embrace of God, that we can finally and truly live. The strange truth is that the more we give, the more we receive. The more we give love away, the more we will experience love. The more we give compassion away, the more we experience compassion. The more we give kindness away, the more we will experience kindness. And the more we tune our eyes to see this eternal giving and receiving in nature, and in the people around us, the more that we experience the mystery of salvation. Mary Oliver closes her poem with these words. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal. To hold it against your bones knowing your own life depends on it and when the time comes to let it go to let it go jesus says if anyone to become my followers let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me for those who want to save their life will lose it and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it when the time comes to let it go. Let it go. Thanks be to God. Amen.